This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your other host, Swara Saleh. And today, we're going to be discussing Thrawn, the new book by Timothy Zahn, and what answers and questions it gives us for the politics of Star Wars. And this will be a spoiler-heavy conversation, uh, so tune out if you do want to read the book unspoiled. Uh, And if you're not a consumer of the novels, then this will be a great explainer for some of the political and societal dynamics at play and in the Empire uh, at large. We are really, really happy to be joined today for the show by special guest... Um, listener of the show, friend of the show, Ross Brown. He's a contributor to fangirlblog.com. Ross, welcome to Beltway Banthas. Howdy, howdy. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a real, real pleasure to have you with us. Uh, we always love taking that next step with listeners of the show who are Beltway Banthas themselves in their own way, big, uh, big enthusiasts of Star Wars politics and politics in general. So I think we're going we're gonna to do, uh, do some damage here to Thrawn and really, uh, really dig in on all the, all the good, bad, and the ugly. But before we get into all of that, uh, there was some news out today, sort of a rehash of news uh, involving Carrie Fisher, um, who we lost in December of last year. Uh, it's been it's been hard for a lot of fans. It has been emotional. Today we got uh, autopsy details of what really led to her death. Uh, it was really a combination of a lot of factors between health and substance abuse. We all knew that Carrie um, was an addict, um, dealt with all of these problems. She was a a huge advocate for mental health, uh, and this sort of speaks to uh, what took her away from us. She had. Yeah heroin in her system, cocaine, um, and ecstasy, uh, along with the other problems that plague her. And, uh, it's just, it's just been hard. I was curious what everyone's reactions was to that news. Um, what difference it makes, if any. Yeah, I saw this news today and I'll just say for me and for many others, it makes no difference. We always knew that Carrie had, uh, this addiction. It was a battle she was fighting her entire life. And, it doesn't really surprise me. It just makes me all the sadder for the pain that she had to go through uh, throughout her lifetime. But, you know, I'm still grateful we ever had her at all. She was an amazing, brilliant, wonderful uh, actress and writer who gave us so much in her lifetime. And we'll always be thankful to her. And, you know, I'm just sorry for her family. And the last point on, uh, you know, these new details, I just hope that people will get the help that they need. And, you know, like Carrie was always an outspoken advocate for that, so hopefully we can honor her memory that way. No, I'm like Suara. You know, the how we lost her to me is not really that important. It's, you know, it's, it's she always sort of held herself up as an example to how to deal with problems, both mental and physical. And that uh, I think you know, her daughter issued a you know, Billy Lord issued a, a statement saying that her mother just would want this to be another sort of learning moment, helpful moment for everyone else. So. I, I think that's pretty true to uh, what Carrie would want. Exactly. Well, Carrie Fisher was intensely human, and she uh, she shared her uh, her humanity with everybody. Um, you know, today that's uh, that's the same as it ever was. Exactly. Exactly. 
But, you know, also in the uh, realm of Star Wars news, um, so I don't know if any of our listeners have been hearing this news about Colin Trevorrow, the slated director and writer for Episode Nine. He just came out with a uh, film called The Book of Henry, which has been getting critically panned uh, by critics and audiences alike. And um, I think this is sort of begging the question. There's a conversation going on in fandom right now about how they feel about Colin Trevorrow. Many people, including myself, have accused him of having a very sexist record in his films. And this has sort of uh, jump-started this conversation in fandom about whether we really want this guy to be writing and directing episode nine. And I'm curious uh, for your gentleman's takes. Uh, uh, Stephen, what do you think about this? Sure. So quick question before I answer. Is he writing the movie or just directing? He's writing as well as directing along with his friend Derek Connolly, who also wrote Jurassic World along with Colin Trevorrow. Fascinating. Yeah. So I tend to, when the internet is going into a hurricane uh, over something like this, I tend to assume that it's much to do about nothing. Uh, that's sort of my general outlook on most of these things. Um, Trevorrow, I, I've seen Jurassic World. I wasn't super impressed, uh, but I'm also not a huge Jurassic Park fan. Those movies don't mean anything to me. Um, I've been a little bit taken aback by the response to the Book of Henry, uh, which I know nothing about. I don't know what this movie is. I've read three reviews at this point, uh, one of which you sent me, Suara, and two out of these three reviews you get halfway down, including the one you sent me, and the person says, I haven't seen the movie yet. They're reading reviews and then writing reviews about reviews. And I just, I can't take that seriously. Um, One person gets a great hot take about how movies might be sexist or whatever, and then people just sort of snowball these reviews and criticisms onto it, and it just sort of seems to me to be incredibly disingenuous. And I also, from what I've gleaned from the book of Henry... It has deeply flawed and horrible female characters. I don't know why you can't tell a story with horrible and flawed and ugly female characters. Uh, It just might be a story that stands alone and it's not meant to be part of some greater social conversation. Um, That being said, I don't care. I'm not going to see the movie because it hasn't gotten good reviews. And I trust the production team to, to make good decisions for Star Wars. I'm... Uh, you know, what is it? In Lucasfilm, we trust. <laughs> yeah, in Kathleen Kennedy, we trust. Uh, Ross, what are your thoughts on this? Have you been keeping up with this conversation? Yeah, I have. I, you know, I read uh, Rachel over the cask. Scavenger Horde, I think. Yes, exactly. Uh, Scavenger's Horde. Yeah. 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 I and mean, that was, I mean, a pretty brutal breakdown. Um, I haven't seen the movie. I haven't watched his, his uh, student film. And uh, I've actually even seen his indie hit. But, I, you know, I did see Jurassic World, man. It did the job. It's like okay, I, I got my dinosaurs, but uh, I didn't come out, you know, saying I'm gonna go home and buy this movie when it comes out. And you know, there's one scene that they talk about, and I totally agree with them. You know, um, there's this a woman character who not just gets killed, but it's almost like this I want to call it torture, but you know, it's just a brutal. She gets grabbed yeah. like a, uh, and it's not a pterodactyl. Someone will. I think it's a pterodactyl, actually. Quite, it was, and then she gets eaten in the water by something in there too. It was quite a, a popcorn uh, cheering in the Coliseum moment. Ugh. Yeah, and I was like, that, that was just so unnecessary. Yeah. And why did it have to be, you know, this woman character? You know, why it was almost like a, uh, you know, punishment, a physical punishment of the woman character, and it just it didn't sit right with me. And when I found out when Trump. Chick Collin was going to be in charge of episode nine. At the time, for some reason, I thought, 
I think that Ryan Johnson was going to do the the script. And I thought, okay, well, he just needs to like film something and work from a really good script. And and now that you know, obviously, he's writing it. And my, I'm, I got to boil it down to: I really trust Kathleen Kennedy and that production team, mm. and I trust them explicitly to step in and say, like, "Whoa, that's." Fix this. I think where I fall down on this is that I wish that they had chosen a different director and writer for episode nine because this is a female led trilogy with Ray as the central hero. And um, I wish we had had someone with a better track record of female characters in film. I, you know, when I saw Jurassic World, you know, Ross, like you, I liked it. I wasn't totally blown away by it. But I remember at the time um, while watching it, I was deeply unsettled with the treatment of the main female character. They made her out to seem, oh, because she's ambitious and she loves work, uh, that's something wrong with her. And she needs to have more maternal instincts. And they had her running in high heels everywhere. And it was just really weird. And her interactions with Chris Pratt's character, I didn't really like. And But then I did some more research on Colin Trevorrow after Book of Henry came out, and I came across something that's very disturbing. Ross, you actually mentioned this. Uh, He made an independent film. It's only eight minutes. It's called uh, Home Base, and it's about a man who tries to get revenge on his ex-girlfriend for breaking up with him by sleeping with the girlfriend's mother. And... uh, yeah, and what I've read about this, I again haven't seen it myself, but I've read like takes on it, and uh, you know, generally neutral takes, not from like uh, you know any of the thing that's been happening recently, but you know, like analyzing this film and showcasing that it's from the uh, male character's point of view and really trying to portray him as the sort of hero in the situation, and I'm just so I think like. I think episode nine overall, I am hopeful and optimistic that it will be fine and really good overall, especially with Kathleen Kennedy and story group overseeing this. But I think that what this says about Contravaro's hiring says something more about the politics of Hollywood and how, you know, a female director, for example, like Patty Jenkins, couldn't get that directing gig because of the inherent sexism that still pertains in Hollywood. And I find that very disappointing. So, again, I think episode nine will overall be at the very least fine, but I'm, I still retain my overall concerns. So, yeah. I, I'm just sort of baffled by this concern about female characters in Jurassic Park. Um, Jurassic World. What? There was, there was a, a unfriendly character cast, uh, and she, she's trying to climb the corporate ladder, uh, and it was, it was sort of frowned upon in the movie. Yeah. Um, Every work addict in almost every movie is a nasty person and shown to be a nasty person who needs to get back to basic things like their relationship with their wives or their relationship with their kids or they need to stop hitting the books so hard and get out in the woods. Like this is a common theme. Have you ever seen Hook? It's not like people people who are obsessed with work are generally cast in movies as annoying and hard to be around people and she got the same treatment as pretty much everyone else and she ends up having to survive in a really tough situation um and the defense of a bridezilla who gets torn to pieces by a pterodactyl uh seemingly because she is annoying seems incredibly disingenuous to me because on a different day people would say why is this character in this movie uh she is a bad representation of women she's obsessed with her wedding she's obsessed with this and obsessed with that she's unbearable and now we're defending her because who cares if she's obsessed with her wedding? She can still be who she is. She doesn't have to get killed by a dinosaur. She's in Jurassic World. 
you're going to get killed by dinosaurs. Obviously, it was a little bit gratuitous, but are we really going to talk about gratuitous deaths in a Jurassic Park movie? I mean, listen, I accept like a lot of those points, but what I will say is that Colin Trevorrow seemed to be relying on a lot of Hollywood stereotypes and Hollywood tropes. And, you know, like that's that may just be the norm, but that's not what I want in an episode nine director who's going to be helming Ray's story. I think that we deserve someone better. I think we deserve someone like J.J. Abrams, like Ryan Johnson, who has such a keen insight into developing female characters and has been proven uh, with their work previously. Um, at least I believe so for Ryan Johnson, like based on how he's been talking about the film, I can tell he really cares about it and how the investment he's going to put into Ray's character. And based on Colin Trevorrow's record, and even some of the general statements he's been making, I just don't see that. And I still retain my concerns. Obviously, we'll see it, and hopefully it'll be really good. But again, I just I retain my concerns. Yeah, I just don't know who this guy is, and I just don't know right, why. Exactly. I don't know why yeah. he's directing a Star Wars movie. I don't think Jurassic World is like mm. the resume spot that you need to direct episode nine of a legendary franchise. Right. I just, I just don't personally see it. I, I, mean, I, I, mean, I really want to know why I, Steven I, Spielberg I, I, hasn't done I, I, one I mean, yet. I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you it's Hollywood politics. It's because Kathleen Kennedy's husband produced Jurassic world ah. and thus like she, yeah. And thus she met Colin Trevorrow through him. And you know, I love Kathleen Kennedy. I think she's done an amazing job, but this is one decision. I, that doesn't sit well with me. Well, I think I think that's a good segue. Uh, playing insider politics and uh, and working your way through uh, through social circles to climb up to the top uh, is the story of Thrawn. How do you like that segue, guys? Um, Very good. Thrawn by Timothy Zahn came out in what April, March of this year. April. We've like, given yeah. yeah, we've given it a little bit of time to get around to it, uh, and I'm really excited to finally talk about this. Um, Thrawn is a legendary character. Grand Admiral Thrawn is a legendary character in Star Wars. He was part of the extended universe, uh, had a huge string of books by Timothy Zahn, heir to the Empire being chief among them, and he was a legendary figure in the Empire. Um, I, for one, am going to raise my hand and say, never read one of these books. Um, (laughs) I'm not familiar. I'm familiar with him, but I don't know anything about his past canon. Ross, uh, where do you stand on this? Is this a a character you are familiar with and uh, well read up on as a young child? Well, yeah, I wish I could say I was a young child when I read them, but uh, I... uh, Yeah, I don't mean that. My bad. Just like (laughs) as a consumer of Star Wars. They're my portal, really, into the the, the the original expanded universe. You know, I I can't remember how I stumbled across it. Even I was in the you know Barnes and Noble bookstore, and I was like, "Wow, this is taking place after Return of the Jedi." I thought nothing happened after that. Yeah. And uh, I picked them up, and you know, I got you know I was sunk into the EU for years until well some things happened in my life. But um, so was, you know, the sad thing is that I've actually forgotten most of the details from the original Zon trilogy. But he's always had this. I don't know, mythic place in my love for the franchise. It's because I remember like how awesome he was, even if I don't know the details of how awesome he was. And um, when I heard he was coming back, you know, say from the ODU to the new one, I was I was pretty excited. I think I spammed Twitter with a whole bunch of Thrawn in capital letters and drove some people away. I think. Yeah, Suara, what about you? 
Uh, I never read the original Thrawn trilogy, but I read many, many, many EU EU books, maybe like 50 in total, like when I was a kid. And, um, you know, Thrawn was, ju- was just a legendary figure. I read about him on Wikipedia and how he was able to nearly bring the uh, New Republic to its knees and the uh, crazy plot he had with George Cabouth and uh, oh. Luke Skywalker, Luke Skywalker's clone and Mara Jade and oh all these like really cool elements that like bled into the rest of the EU that I was reading. And he just like seemed like such an incredible legendary figure and just really cool. And now getting the opportunity to read him, well, actually first see him in Rebels and now read the book and get more insight into his internal uh, machinations. I'm really enthralled with the character and he's one of my favorite villains now. Yeah, he's been awesome in Star Wars Rebels. I mean, that was really my first introduction to him and he has lived up to the hype um, in many ways as the methodical um, tacticianer that he is. Tactician, not tacticianer. Tactician, yeah. <laughs> tactician that he is. Um, known to be. And in this book by Timothy Zahn, he has revived the character, given us the backstory. In many ways, it's tied to his old backstory. We don't review every book that comes out in Star Wars canon. We really just take the ones that uh, have some sort of political, um, sociological connection uh, to Star Wars. And so this one fell right into there. Uh, One of the leading things that we wanted to kind of bring up and talk about um, were xenophobia and the Empire. Um, Is the Empire... Uh, human-centric, and does it discriminate against aliens? That's something that has come up in past conversations, and it's a part of the understanding of a lot of the old EU. Um, This book also touches on the way that lobbying works on Coruscant, special influence, and how uh, bureaucrats and uh, and people who are peddling uh, peddling insider politics can rise to the top, a la Governor Price. Uh, We also get a more in-depth look at social structures in the empire, outer rim versus the core conflict, how people on the outer rim sort of feel uh, detached from the workings of the inner core worlds, uh, how class works in this system. Um, And then also the idea of meritocracy uh, and aristocracy in the empire. Do people rise to the top uh, based on their merit or do they rise to the top based on who they know? So quick 30,000 foot view. What does everybody think of this book? Uh, Ross, you've written a big review on it. Did you like this book? I liked it. Uh, it had its problems, but um, it, was, it was a really balanced book. You know, the, I don't know how deep you want me to go to this, but uh, go as I deep think, as you, you know, can. it gave me. Okay, I'll, I'm climbing up to the uh, high dive board. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, you know, it's sort of like in this book, you know, someone went to Timothy's on and said, hey, we want you to, like, redo your classic hit. And he's like, sure, I love it. And the, the problem was, you know, he went back and he got kind of, he fell in love with his character. And the one issue I had with the book was Thrawn was perfect. I mean, the only time you ever see him sort of at a disadvantage that he cared about, he turned out to be kind of a, a, a false flag thing. He, he faked it really almost to, well, sort of uh, just get other events to fall his way. I mean, yeah. it's a really great tactical move he does, but um, he just, he never makes a mistake. That, and I'm right. leery about the idea that even his political sort of uh, lack of political finesse is really even that sincere or not intentional. We'll get around to his sort of lack of political finesse because I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah. I, I'm in agreement uh, with you that the book um, was good. 
there was never a moment where I wanted to keep reading. I always had to make myself keep going because there was never any high stakes because Thrawn is always aware of what's going on. He is the master tactician. He knows everything and he's never vulnerable. So he was completely uninteresting to me. I I found what, uh, you know, who he is to be interesting and how he plays into the empire uh, to be thought provoking. But the only thing that I really kept reading this book for was governor price, uh, who we see in rebels, uh, as a, as a governor of Lothal, um, high ranking Imperial. And in this book, we see her down at the bottom and we get to see how she climbed the ladder. Yeah. You see her struggle and rise from the bottom to the top. You see a real growth. You see her having to change herself to fit into the lines of the empire. And there's a really compelling, uh, plot overall there. Um, like you guys, I like Thrawn. I don't necessarily love it. I don't think it has the strongest cohesive narrative. It kind of don't want to say it goes all over the place, but rather it takes a long time to really get going anywhere. But I will disagree with you slightly, uh, Stephen and Ross. Um, I actually really, this makes me love Thrawn even more. And, um, you know, people have been comparing the character to Sherlock Holmes, another character that I've always really liked. And I've loved seeing that internal, um, you know, like uh, manipulation that he makes uh, for, sorry, let me start over. I've always loved seeing that sort of uh, internal insight into his mind and how he solves problems. And, you know, at the beginning of each book, so I've been watching Clone Wars and I'm actually a little annoyed by that little uh, blue text that comes up at first giving some sort of proverb. I've actually found that a little pedantic, but the way you have sort of the same thing in Thrawn as well. At the beginning of each chapter, Thrawn gives some insight into the art of war, the art of politics or um, how to uh, win battles. And I think the way it's articulated and the way it's written is really brilliant and compelling. And I will say that uh, Timothy Zahn is a brilliant writer. I love his prose so, so much. Um, To compare to something else, in Aftermath, I really hated the prose there, but I really love the prose here. It's, like, perfect, in my opinion. Well, the book starts off with Eli Vanto, uh, an imperial... So the book starts off with Eli Vanto... Um, and his Imperial crew coming across Thrawn in the Unknown Reaches. And we learn about Imperial policy for alien discovery is the first sort of bit of big picture stuff that we get about the way that the Empire works. What we find out is that when the Empire comes across alien uh, species or alien relics, there is a, a bureaucratic process that they're supposed to go through, uh, that it dates back to the, the, the Republic um, because the Republic was so multicultural, so vast, they had a, a sort of institutional appreciation for discovering new cultures. And what you find is that this appetite is gone in the Imperial Navy. Uh, the officers don't care much for these steps they have to take of cataloging, finding new species or new relics. They just don't care for that sort of multicultural uh, size of the galaxy sort of thing. Um, And they talk about rumors that Emperor Palpatine is working to revoke the protocols that are in place for all of this cultural appreciation. Um, But for the moment, the Senate supports uh, maintaining those things because the Senate itself is this big, vast, multicultural body. And so you almost see in the very beginning of this book that there are still certain vestiges of the Republic that are in place. Part of it is that the Senate still actually has a little bit of power, particularly on the culture and the way that the empire works. 
um, and that the empire is moving towards a very human centric, uh, view of the galaxy. Yeah. I think that, you know, as, uh, democracies or republics fall into dictatorship, I think that you see policies and laws put into place that increasingly enroach upon the rights of citizens and its jurisdiction. And I think this is a classic case of that. I think you see this multicultural Senate that feels okay to go along with these rules and stipulations. They think, oh, it's just like, uh, you know, our regular, uh, you know, guideline, you know, like how we do things. But it's more insidious in its execution. And eventually it'll lead to I don't know if it's a specific policy, you know, in the empire, or at least there are policies in place that put humans above the rest, above the other aliens. And it's just, uh, yeah, I think we see this example in real world history all the time. Yeah, you know, one of the things I really liked about uh, this approach is when Eli's explaining something to Thrawn about, you know, how most humans really don't like aliens, and he calls back to the Clone Wars and how most of the separatists were all alien species and most of the people for the Republic were humans and that played this large role of building distrust and that was originally introduced to us with the uh, propaganda book by Pablo Hidalgo and uh, I love that continuation of this like, logical flow of distrust and fear and, uh, and you know and also historically you know when you have uh, you know like say like the Roman Empire for example when, you had, when the Roman Empire was having its big civil wars, and you know, after a point, it sort of became like sort of like an annual thing, like oh, let's kill the emperor and have another civil war. But um, they, they started looking inward, and you started losing interest in what's beyond the border. And I, you know, I can also see that happening here. It's just that you had this massive war that destroyed you know, planets and peoples, and and uh, it created that chaos that you know lulled in people like Tarkin and and whatnot to like, create order out of that chaos. And, and part of that focus is just taking care of everything in your own you know, backyard. You, you don't care about what's beyond because you have something more pressing. And, uh, and I, I see all that coming together with the uh, sort of the alien sort of xenophobia and whatnot. It's really cool. And we see this discussed in Thrawn as Eli is offering to Thrawn an explanation of hierarchy and internal politics, uh, how to get into power in the empire itself. Uh, you know, Vanto says, yes, there's absolutely a hierarchy, a big, impressive, mostly unwritten, but absolutely rigid hierarchy. If you were counting on me to introduce you to the high and mighty, you're going to be seriously disappointed. Hey guys, uh, we just got to t- had to take a break for a second because unfortunately Steven isn't feeling well and this is the only time we have to record. So Ross and I will be continuing this conversation. Um, yeah, so sorry to, about that, um, everyone, but you know, Ross and I are in for a great discussion on Thrawn. So yeah, like, uh, Thrawn, uh, Ross, you just heard the quote, uh, I was talking about between Thrawn and Vinto, Vanto. First off, what do you think of their relationship throughout? And do you think that Eli gave Thrawn crucial insight to get ahead in the empire or was that mostly Thrawn himself? You know, that's, that's a good question. You know, obviously by the end of the book, Eli has made enough of an impression where Thrawn sort of sent him off on his way to, to the Chiss Empire yeah. to sort of serve in some capacity. But, uh, but you know, it, he talks about uh, really early on in the book how one of the strategic goals was to get Eli to be his translator. And I think part of that was just to use Eli as a shield to sort of make people think he wasn't as smart or capable of interacting with everyone else as they as he, they would otherwise would be, and uh, basically, I think he sort of took 
Eli started off as a prop and slowly became sort of a trusted lieutenant, so to speak, someone he could mentor and, and teach how to look at the world and military you know, problems more strategically. Exactly. He was his Dr. Watson to his Mr. Holmes, you would say. Exactly. Elementary, Suara. Elementary, dear Ross. Elementary. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, Eli, uh, in the context of the book, he's not from the, uh, you know, he's a bit of an outsider himself. He's not from the uh, political elite of the empire. I think it's hinted at in the book or in the audio book explicitly, they show that he has a bit of a Southern accent that, you know, he's from the outer rim. He doesn't have the Coruscanti or as we would know it, British accent. And we've talked about this on the show before in conversations about flyover country. You know, you got the coastal elites, but then you've got people in the Midwest, uh, the South and elsewhere who um, don't experience the same sort of privilege that the coasts do. And, uh, often it may be rare to have someone, you know, like rising through those ranks. Did you get that impression as well from Eli? Yeah. I mean, at least Eli had that impression of himself. <laughs> you know, he, he had his own yeah. personal, you know, when he was told he's going to the Imperial Academy on Coruscant, he kind of freaked out. It's like, Oh no, I had this easy Academy out on the boondocks and where I didn't have to like try hard. And I was going to end up being a guy who ran numbers and, and uh, I definitely had that impression, you know, when he first met, um, I think it was with like, the commandant of the academy, he kind of just sort of put him down because he was from wild space area. You know, right. Just, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, there's a really like interesting parallel right there. I mean. It's interesting because, you know, we know the empire as a human supremacist organization, but, um, you know, it is difficult for humans from certain areas to get ahead in life. And I think that there's a parallel to be made. Uh, You know, you could see aliens in the Star Wars universe as being akin to immigrants here and coming here in the U.S. And uh, maybe people like Eli or people in the Outer Rim as being from the South or from that flyover country. So who also don't have necessarily that same level of privilege. It's an it's a socioeconomic factor as well as a racial or species one, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I would hesitate at the immigrant comparison just because, mm-hmm. you know, our nation is a, is a nation of immigrants. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really good, yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing is that in Italy and, you know, within our, in our world, of course, you know, immigrants come in and they can assimilate. And for some individuals from certain areas, you know, they can be accepted as, you know, like, okay, you're part of the majority now. But, and, you know, a Rodian is never going to be a human. They're always going to be Rodian. But, uh, you know, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that uh, Eli has sort of a southern accent because I remember reading with, uh, I used to watch lots of anime, and there was like a sort of a rural region in Japan that whenever a character was from that region, they had like a, a specific accent that any Japanese listener would recognize in Japanese. So when they were trying to trans- get, you know, get a human to do, uh, when they're getting like an English speaker to do that voice, they actually would just end up defaulting to uh, a southern accent to represent that rural country background yeah and uh, so it's i guess that's 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I know what you're talking about. I think I saw that character in Dragon Ball Z a couple of times. Um, no, but yeah, uh, Ross, you're absolutely right. I think I use the term immigrant with alien far, far too loosely. I only meant to say that you had those parallels of uh, social hierarchies that are maybe based on race in the real world, because in the U.S., we still deal with so much systematic racism, you know, for for example, African-American populations and my other minorities. And I only meant to say that, you know, there seems to be some of that parallel as well, like in the Star Wars universe under the time of the empire, not that we're anywhere near that extreme, but in certain parts of this country, it may feel that extreme, you know, to a struggling family of an, like of a certain uh, racial or socioeconomic background. Um, But, you know, speaking again about flyover country, we have another main character in Thrawn, who essentially comes from there, from Lothal. Yeah, Arinda Price, who seeks help from the imperial bureaucracy to save her uh, family's mind, but then she gets caught up in imperial politics, and you know she has to abandon Lothal, and she gets work in a senator's office, and you know what do you make of her journey throughout the book, Ross? Uh, you, uh, Stephen mentioned uh, he really liked her, but how about you? Well, you know, you talk about her saving the, the mind of her family's minds, and she saved the book. I mean, I love, you know, like I said, I, I read Sherlock too, and you know, it's always fun. And I have, it's fun watching Thrawn just do his Thrawn thing. But uh, Price brought the natural character arc, in my opinion, to the book, and she was one of the main reasons I kept on turning the page because she she sort of represents this wonderful. It's like a timeless tale, at least especially in America, where um, someone from the country full of superb ideas, goes to the, like the big city or like, you know, the Washington DC and, and they start making compromises. And at the end of the day, when they're, they've achieved everything they wanted, they're a totally different person than the person they set out for. And they, they don't realize it. So, uh, yeah. Christ was beautiful. Yeah, and you know that's what they'd say uh, D.C. does to a lot of people. People come here with high-rising, optimistic dreams of doing the West Wing life, but then they end up working for a lobbying firm or they, (laughs) you know, like maybe get higher up in government and become cynical or something. So I'm really curious. uh, This is a question, uh, you know, Stephen had. uh, How similar was Price's role to a legislative assistance job in a representative or a senator's office. Um, I found it to be like, you know, really funny. Some of these scenes in which he was handling some of these uh, random constituents coming into the senator's office or some of the, uh, you know, like, uh, I forget, like business people the senator was meeting with. What do you make of those? And do you think like we see that in real life that often? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, I, I've known some folks who've worked you know, in a state representative's office or senator's office, and they talk about just building phone calls from every side, every angle of the world in terms of their constituents, just wanting help on this or asking questions about that. And I think whenever you have a, uh, a person whose job in government is to respond to other people's needs, you're going to have someone like this in this capacity, be it in our, in our country and uh, any other country in the world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, the picture painted in Thrawn via the experience of Price, you know, they're incredibly familiar to what we see in the real world. And, you know, the way people in, 
town talk about the ladder and social constructs. You know, we were talking about both the socioeconomic hierarchy coming from the South or coming from the uh, outer rim or, you know, being of a certain background. And, you know, the empire seems to be very stringent in how it conducts this overall. And, um, you know, but they do seem to, I mean, you know, in a way, Thrawn is a book about exceptional people of a certain unprivileged background making it up in the highest uh, uh, like positions in the most powerful force in the galaxy. So, you know, in a way, I could almost see it as rather inspiring from a certain point of view, if you will. Yeah, in fact, if you really think about it, given our sort of range of villains, so to speak, in Star Wars, um, they're kind of unique. I mean, I was thinking about uh, Battlefront uh, by Alexander Freed, an awesome book. I love it. Oh, yeah? But uh, one of its villains in that book is, uh, you know, it's like a sort of a guy who's just treated like a prodigy, and he has everything handed to him. He's sort of like this, I don't want to call him, uh, he's like the sort of a golden child group for the emperor, and um, you know, everything's handed to him on a plate, and he's, he's, you know, he gets to walk around his cape and uh, impress people. But, uh, and I guess the exception, of course, being our, uh, our good friend from Rogue One. Uh, yeah, yeah. Krennic. Exactly. <laughs> who, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I like, because, you know, Will, you know, Tarkin, he comes from, like, a pretty privileged uh, background. So it's, it's, yeah. and, uh, so it's, it's nice seeing our, uh, our villains have sort of working class roots or whatever Thrawn's his roots are but uh but price yeah definitely she uh, she climbed from the very bottom wrong it's really nice seeing that yeah and what i also found interesting is that you know i think yeah they stayed in the book she changed her accent to fit in with the imperial hierarchy she you know really changed everything about herself in order to fit in and to rise through the ranks you know and I, again like tra- trailing uh, back to dc i think that you see that often here or in government generally when people are willing to make these sacrifices about themselves and their own background to really rise up. And I think we see a prime example of that in our very dear Arinda or Arhinda. Sorry, guys, I don't know how to pronounce the name exactly. I was sort That's of, why I'm going with Price. That's why you're going with Price. Yeah. Price, Price, Price. <laughs> price, 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 Price. I mean, like, you know, it's a nice name. It's a nice name overall, and I just, you know, you feel endeared towards her. This is something with me, whenever I uh, get really attached to a uh, character, I love referring to them by their first name, except for Uncle Palpy. You know, like, I mean, that's a name I got for him, Palpy. I mean, I'll call him Sheev sometimes, but Palpy, generally. Um, But, uh, yeah, I would really love to call her our our, our Inda. Try to pronounce her name. Timothy Zahn, tell us how to pronounce it. (laughs) Um, I think if we go to Rebels, it's there in Rebels somewhere. It's in Rebel somewhere. I'll have to do a rewatch so I can, uh, you know, like uh, figure that out <laughs> finally. You know, and we and we see with uh, Price as uh, she's in the senator's office, her dealing with a lot of lobbying, people coming into the senator's office as well. And um, what do you make of these scenes? You know, when she was dealing with some of these uh, constituents and such and lobbyists. You know, I, I really do feel that Zahn kind of looked at her own government, how it worked to serve reflectively sort of bureaucratic or, you know, like the, rep, the constituency type approach. And I feel like it, it seemed pretty true. I mean, later on, she gets become part of an advocacy group, and that suddenly reopens all these avenues to her to reaching out to people. And, and uh, you know, that's true for, I mean, that's part of our own 
sort of cultural media perspective. I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, movie Distinguished Gentleman, and uh, you know, part of that movie is just Eddie Murphy's character as a newly elected representative, just meeting with one representative group after another, and uh, you know, having that uh, the power of a lot of people behind you in terms of votes and money that gets access, and I think that's accurately represented in Star Wars as it is in DC. Totally, I think that. Um, you know, it's all about who you know and uh, the money that you have coming into a representative's office and how you're able to haggle. And it's all really built on these personal relationships at the end of the day. So uh, speaking of special relationships and personal relationships, let's pivot back to Thrawn and his special relationship with our dear old Uncle Palpy. You know, they seem to have a really good rapport at the beginning of the book. And, um, you know, Palpatine, it's really interesting. You know, I've always found him to be someone who always advocates for the uh, human supremacist angle of the Empire. But he's very taken in with Thrawn. He's very intrigued with him and understands that this alien from the unknown regions can be of great benefit to him, especially in regard to the unknown threats in the unknown regions. Sorry to sound redundant. <laughs> and, um, you know, he seems to have a real special, uh, uh, spot for him. And as I understand it, they apparently made some sort of secret deal or something. I mean, I've heard rumors of this or maybe it was stated in the book specifically. I can't really remember. Um, I don't know, Ross, what are your thoughts on the relationship between the Grand Admiral and his Emperor? You know, I, I specifically went back and sort of skimmed the uh, the really great uh, interaction between the Emperor and Thrawn. If you, if you really want to get a mouthful of working on someone's name, try pronouncing Thrawn's name. <laughs> I, last time I can remember, it's Mithron Duoro or something. I'll go with that. <laughs> you, know, you got my vote. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, it was, it's great that the, the password for Thrawn to sort of get that private audience with, or, or get the catch um, Emperor's ears is Anakin Skywalker. Right. But, uh, who uh, Thrawn met during the Clone Wars during a sort of a, a mission for the Chiss Empire to uh, sort of reach out and see what's going on out there. But uh, my, as I understood it, you know, basically the Emperor is like really interested in the unknown sort of territories out there, unknown space, and and this sort of comes through with uh, I think in an aftermath when mm. uh, you know they talk about sitting people out there, and, and I, as I understood it, the deal was basically you know. You come work with me. You tell me about what you know about that area, mm. and uh, you know I'll let you learn about us. And uh, I feel like it's more complex than that. And I, I hate myself for not having this really awesome explanation for the deeper uh, analysis. But um, I think you know the emperor. He's got an eye for for skill and for ability, and I think he. I'd say he probably immediately he immediately intercedes through everything about Thrawn. He knows that he doesn't need Eli to translate. And uh, I think he just sees this as a chance to recruit, you know, one more, you know, uh, skilled individual to his uh, sort of cabinet of awesome uh, good guys slash bad guys, depending on which side you're on. And so that's what I, I think of, of the uh, sort of the, the grand bargain he makes. Because, you know, he really presses them on. So if um, the Empire and the Trist Empire, if we ever have, you know, butt heads, who side are you on? And, and Thrawn's like, well, you have my allegiance. And, and uh, the Emperor kind of really sort of comes back around to that, saying, are, you know, are, are you sure you don't want to you know, fight for your own people? And it's like, you know, if I serve you, then you have my allegiance. And, and they sort of left it at that. 
Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the novel, it's also left ambiguous. Uh, to get into spoilers here, I mean, we're discussing all the spoilers. It turns out that Thrawn actually is... He wasn't exiled by the Chiss at all. He's actually essentially a sleeper agent in the empire and he's been rising through the ranks. He was actually surprised by himself that he rose through that fast or, um, that high in the empire. And, you know, he sends Eli to, uh, the Chiss, uh, ascendancy as well, you know, to essentially, uh, from my understanding, do the same thing that he's doing in the empire. So, um, I have a feeling like now in my biased view as someone who loves Palpatine. But seriously, though, Palpatine knows all. I feel that he at least has some sort of suspicion or some sort of understanding that Thrawn has like some uh, loyalty to his uh, people. And, you know, like, but he still understands how to manipulate Thrawn to a certain degree that he can still be one step ahead of him, despite how brilliant Thrawn is. And the other thing is, of course, Palpatine has the force, you know, he is able to foresee into the future uh, with the dark side. And that gives him a certain political edge uh, over, yeah, our uh, brilliant main protagonist. Yeah, definitely. You know. If we could take Thrawn's really key, Thrawn, you know, he meets up with Night Swan, the, the, the main antagonist for Thrawn throughout the entire book. Right. And if we can take that conversation as, as truth, you know, he, Thrawn kind of just says, like, you know, I, I'm happy to, to serve the Empire until the Emperor kicks the bucket, and then, <laughs> then I might be able to manipulate who gets in charge. And I'm like, uh, I don't know if, you know, Darth Vader would agree with that, but um, I think, uh, and maybe the Emperor saw that. That, hey, this guy is going to serve me. And he may have this idea that he can take over the empire or at least manipulate it. And I know my apprentice here is going to handle that. So I'm just going to use this guy to you know take care of the rebels and take care of my other problems. Yeah, totally. I mean, Palpy is just being utilitarian as always and using uh, every tool at his disposal to get ahead and to consolidate rule of his empire. And I just want to go to this one quote that uh, Thrawn says. I think it's uh, I forget where it was exactly, but um, the tone of a government is set by its leader, but Emperor Palpatine will not live forever. When it comes time for his authority to be handed to another, my position as a senior officer will allow me to influence the choice of that leader. I find that quote very interesting because we know Thrawn is someone who always wants to rise to the top or get as far ahead as he can, but he understands his own limitations as well. He knows that he'll probably never be the head, uh, the full head of the Imperial Navy or, well, I mean, he is at least one of the heads of the Imperial Navy as Grand Admiral, uh, forgive me, but still, like, uh, one of the rulers of the Empire, he understands that he'll never be that, but at the very least, he can influence the choice of leader, you know, if he gets so far ahead, and as we know through Rebels, he does. So, you know, I'm wondering, this is like my, uh, you know, uh, theory brain going out of control right now, but maybe he has some sort of influence in the First Order, you know, we don't know what happens to Thrawn yet, so... So who knows? I oh please don't kill him off. Please uh, yeah, rebels uh, don't well, kill him off. Yeah. You know it's I, I hate to say that, but you know they Thrawn gets killed off by a loyal sort of alien servant of his. Right. In and, the old um, EU. And uh, he has been brought in to be played by uh, one of our favorite Star Wars actors uh, this next season of Rebels. Um, yeah. yeah, by uh, Warwick Davis. Yeah. Exactly. 
And so I'm not I'm not feeling really good about Thrawn right now. No. Well, um, I think that's going to do it for our overall thoughts on Thrawn and the politics of the novel. And, um, you know, just to wrap up, uh, I, you know, even though I don't think it's the best cohesive narrative novel overall, it still makes me appreciate imperial politics to an even greater degree than I did before. And I love Thrawn as a character and Governor Price as well and seeing how she rose through the ranks. And Ross, what are your final thoughts? Um, I think the book, you know, Go to the for Thrawn if you want Thrawn. You're gonna get Thrawn. Thrawn in buckets fulls of Thrawn. <laughs> but uh, stay for Price. Wait, 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 Ross. Prices. Wait, Ross. Binders full of Thrawn. Yes, binders full of Thrawn. There you go. Yeah, and I'm gonna go with the Price is Right as my recommendation. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Oh yeah, yeah. Do it all night long. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, guys, that's going to do it for our discussion on Thrawn. And now we are going to move on to listener email. And uh, I got one from uh, Kyle Roussel. I was discussing uh, sort of fan theories with him on Facebook uh, about a couple of weeks ago. And he sent us this email. He says, Hey, Suara, sorry for the long delay sending you this theory of mine, but as promised last week on Facebook, here's my thoughts on how Lucasfilm could do a loosely connected trilogy of standalones. In homage to George Lucas and his love of westerns, I've been thinking that the next three standalones, should they turn out to be Han Solo, Bounty Hunters, and Obi-Wan, could be weaved together to form a loosely connected trilogy with western look and feel. The Han Solo movie already seems to be going down that path a little bit. Everyone and their dog expects an inevitable Obi-Wan to be the same. A Bounty Hunter film could slash would naturally be sandwiched in between these those two films and have the same western feel. I mean, really, who couldn't see the Magnificent Seven in space? The through-line character in all three films? Dun-dun-dun! Cad Bane. Bane could be involved in the Han Solo flick. He could also be involved totally nullifying every word of this email. He was totally badass in the Clone Wars. Um, to our listeners who may not know, that's where the character Cad Bane from comes from. He's a bounty hunter in the Clone Wars anime and TV series. Uh, he was totally badass in the Clone Wars and may very well be the better mo- slash most feared bounty hunter in the timeline of the forthcoming Han Solo movie. Then part two of the trilogy would be a bounty hunter's flick where we could meet a team led by Bane hunting down the last of the Jedi as an example plotline. The team of hunters fractures as they backstab one another to capture the last bounties on behalf of Vader. Boba Fett then rises as the anti-hero of that movie and ends up going after Bane, who somehow catches wind of Kenobi hiding on Tatooine. I'll leave that somehow to people smarter than me. Bane eludes Boba Fett, and in part three, the Obi-Wan standalone film, Bane is the antagonist. He's located Kenobi and fixing to bring him to the Empire for his last big score. He's also the last credible threat to Kenobi this time, Maul and Twin Sun's story yet to come. The Star Wars Western saga concludes with the last battle between Kenobi and Cad Bane. That's the bare skeleton. I happen to think it makes a bit sense, but it hinges on two very unlikely things. One, they bring Cad Bane to the big screen. Two, they do a bounty hunter movie before a Kenobi movie. It's bound to be a total bunk, but it's fun to speculate, isn't it? Thoughts? Cheers, Kyle at Tumbling Saber. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for your long and detailed email on this fan speculation. And I'm just going to go ahead and say I think that's a great idea. But 
I think that main point you rise of a bounty hunters film coming before an Obi-Wan film is very unlikely, but who knows? Maybe you could have some sort of loose thread between these three films at the same time. I don't think it's outside of the realm of speculation. I actually believe I uh, watched on Collider Jedi Council. Um, I highly recommend our listeners to check them out. They do great work Um, that there could be some sort of loose thread in between these standalone films as well. Um, Ross, what do you think of this idea? Would you like to see it at all? It's intriguing. Um, you know, one of the things that I'd be worried about would be forcing the story too much to adhere to certain events just to get the continuity between all three. Mm. You know, ever since the, uh, well, I won't go into that spoiler uh, from Poe Dameron comics, but I would love to see, a, you know, Duro's alien reappear on the screen. We had some in the uh, cantina in A New Hope, but... Um, Oh gosh, where was I going with that? <laughs> the uh, you know one thing is uh, you know you know don't forget we we're almost gonna have a Boba Fett movie yeah um, for uh, Josh Trank tanks so to speak um, yeah and so I could see, you know I think the Batman remain kind of enticing and mm-hmm. uh, the idea of you know Seven Samurai has been done with bounty hunters in Star Wars it's right. a uh, Clone Wars this Clone Wars episode. Right. I uh, unfortunately can't remember it, but it's like pretty really big stand up. They uh, there's a small uh, village where they are actually being preyed upon by uh, our favorite uh, pirate good guy before he actually becomes a good guy, Hondo Onaka, right. and uh, they hire some uh, bounty hunters to come in and protect them from Hondo. And uh, it's not, it's not a bad uh, storyline. It's um, I want to say it's kind of like season two, maybe season three. Yeah, I, re- I remember watching this episode. I've only recently started watching Clone Wars all the way through and uh i just finished season four and i remember which episode you're talking about it's with obi-wan and anakin and i think ahsoka as well a really good episode overall yeah Yeah. so uh, i'm not opposed to it but uh you know i think the you know one thing they maybe end up doing is with their standalones is if they really rock it you know they'll they'll want to keep going forward so of course have a good han solo movie expect han solo too and instead of trying to like maybe force the second chapter being not Han Solo. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing that uh, Han Solo Part 2 and having the sort of Bounty Hunter spinoff, it, it, you know, it has happened with Marvel. They have done it with our Avengers movies and with, right. you know, Iron Man. Yep. Yeah. No, I think, like, uh, we'll just have to wait and see what the filmmakers and story group come out uh, with for us. So I'm just looking forward to more Star Wars, man. I think it's going to be great. So yeah. now we... So now we move on to our legendary Bantha Fodder segment in which we just talk about uninterrupted, whatever is on our minds, Star Wars, politics, or otherwise. And uh, Ross, as our guest, uh, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. I'll, bring you, I'll open this, the, the show for you here. <laughs> um, well, first off, I am, I am thrilled to have a fodder. It's an uh, excellent type of fodder. I'm going to keep it light, though, because... Uh, one thing I've been meaning to do, actually, in my personal life, is send a, a thank you to a fellow Star Wars fan and her husband. You know, uh, but keep it on topic here. Shortly after the shooting in Arlington, we just recently had, there was a much sort of banning about moment of unity between Democrats and Republicans with a congressional baseball game. You know, I think it's fantastic that our elected representatives could come together, but it's also, I mean, kind of illusory. It's, it's, I think it's temporary, unfortunately, until things really change on Capitol Hill. And what I really think needs to happen is something... Uh, that we find in our Star Wars fandom this altruistic spirit where loving Star Wars brings people together and they do awesome things for each other. And I, I, our congresspersons find that with governing our country. They, that 
hey, we're, we're here in Congress. We're here to take care of our country and make it a better place. So we may disagree, but let's work together. And, you know, I think I see that a lot here on the uh, podcast. Oh. Um, where, yeah, I think uh, it's secret agreement, secret ingredient. That's what we call it to you. You and uh, Stephen's great working relationship. It's just that there's this friendship that serves as the foundation. And uh, despite the fact that one of you happily wears an imperial uniform, um, <laughs> or, or you, know, you both may have different personal views of politics, you guys bring together this great conversation, and you can discuss it, and you can work together. And uh, you know, I'm continually amazed at the generosity and the outreach our fandom continually demonstrates. Now, um, you mentioned I'm a contributor with uh, the Fangirl blog, and and they're awesome. Trisha Byers, fantastic. And uh, everyone on that group, the team, they went down to uh, Celebration Orlando. I, I stayed up here and uh, couldn't go. But uh, without me saying a word, you know, Trisha out of the blue asked if I wanted a T-shirt from the Celebration so I could feel like I was, I was part of the experience. And uh, as I would say, like, you know, like a frog in a hot road, I jumped to that opportunity pretty quickly. And uh, another fangirl blog member, BJ Priester, he went into the chaos of the Celebration store to uh, grab not one but two T-shirts for me. Aww. And now they're my favorite T-shirts. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the Celebration kindness didn't end there. I have a friend of mine from high school whom I literally have not spoken to in nearly 20 years. And um, she spontaneously sent me a small package of swag that she and her husband had made to hand out to other people at the Celebration. And so, you know, her idea was like, hey, this is like something you have gotten if you've been here. Her name, and this is my shout to her, is uh, Melanie Ellison, and her husband is Wayne Ellison. They're also, unsurprisingly, part of the fantastic Fiverr and First Legion, mm. specifically uh, the uh, Tyrannus Garrison right. in Virginia. But um, I want to say, you know, thanks to them, uh, Melanie and, and Wayne, for their kindness and to the fangirl team. Uh, you know, I, I want to see that kindness happen in D.C., where... People can say, hey, we may disagree, but we both love what, why we're here and what we're doing. So let's cross the aisle, literally, and you know, work together, even if it means coming to a compromise or at least having a simple discussion about why we can't compromise. So that's my Bantha fodder, and uh, thank you for giving me this distinct pleasure of giving some fodder. Ross, that was uh, really, really wonderful to hear overall, and thank you First off, for the kind words about the podcast, I'm so glad we finally brought you on, man. This has been an absolute delight and like really stimulating intellectual pleasure to have you on. And, um, you know, your kind words about Fangirl Blog and the amazing work Trisha Barr and the team there does. And, um, you know, we have a really wonderful community. And you're right. I really hope we see D.C., you know, take a page out of our books, hopefully. Um, I got to So for my Bantha Fodder, I have... Something far less uh, positive and optimistic to talk about. I'm listeners. I am very perturbed, and frankly, I am uh, with the news in the past couple of weeks, including the uh, shooting in Alexandria that Ross mentioned uh, of a congressional member, Republican House Majority Whip Steve Scalise. I have been very, uh, you know, disappointed with our response as we uh, go along with this. And, you know, on gun violence here in the U.S., enough is enough. 
we need common sense gun laws now. The sh- that shooting was horrifying. It was terrifying. It occurred right nearby where I live here in Arlington. It was, and I was also angered, you know, at that moment because yet again we're going through this cycle of demanding action on guns and getting zero results. Now, of course, the motive of the shooter was important to consider. He was a disgruntled uh, former Bernie Sanders supporter. He was homeless, but and he also had a history of violence. That's something we should have checked. Obviously, you know, our polit- how we speak in our politics, politics is important and how we conduct that is you know, something to consider. But I think we need to be focusing on the mechanism through which these people can get access to guns and assault rifles. And, you know... Congress continues to do nothing about it. I'm absolutely disgusted with the political establishment that's in the bed with the NRA, who, since the slaughter of children in Sandy Hook, they've continued to ignore the will of the people. And, like, I find specifically, you know, a certain party has continued to contrive simplistic Second Amendment reasons not to act on guns. And the polls are clear. Gallup shows that more than 60% of Americans are dissatisfied with our nation's gun laws. And a recent CNN slash ORC poll finds that 92% of Americans want expanded background checks. The only reason Congress is doing nothing on this is because of special interests with the gun lobby and the NRA and meaningless pandering to a gun-loving base that does not make up necessarily at all the majority of the Republican electorate. I just find this despicable and wrong. I know I'm only like one person ranting about this now, but seriously, I urge our listeners to study more of the politics about this, about the influence the NRA and their partners have in Congress and through their media landscape. I'm certainly no expert, but I want us all to understand better how they have such a grip on this, uh, you know, on, on like uh, preventing solutions to this problem. And I hope that we can all understand better how to solve this epidemic in our nation. You know, we can't stop demanding action. I hope it happens one day. But I also have a second part of my fodder that's related to how we deal with and respond to violence. We need to address the recent attacks in both the U.S. and the U.K. My hearts go out to all the grieving families. And I, I don't know if our listeners have heard this was this weekend. Um there was a girl. Her name was uh, Nadra. Uh, last name is uh, Kep. She was a Muslim teenager, um, and she was killed. You know, uh, right here in Virginia, in uh, Fairfax County, and you know, she was. Uh, apologies. Her name was Nabra. Sorry. Uh, she was assaulted while leaving her mosque, and uh, somehow she got into an altercation with this man who's thankfully now in custody and unfortunately we saw another attack on muslims recently in the uk uh a van intentionally ran into practitioners at a mosque as they were breaking for iftar or they were completing their uh night uh prayers and you know i noticed a very distinct response between the u.s and the uk in the uk they immediately responded to this and called it a terrorist incident because the man was trying to kill Muslims, he yelled that out. And thankfully, they have him in custody. Whereas here, with the killing of Nabra, um, police 
for some reason, they, de- they decide to tweet out, we're not investigating this as a hate crime. Now, obviously, it is the Department of Justice and other uh, law enforcement entities that make that decision of whether or not something will be investigated as a hate crime. But st- there's something deeply unsettling in me that we here in the U.S. continue to ignore this as a problem, this consistent attack on Muslim communities across the U.S. And I think we have something to learn from across the pond who, you know, from our uh, friends in the U.K. across the pond who immediately responded to uh, an attack on Muslims as what it was, a terrorist incident. And that's my uh, very long uh, bantha fodder. You know, I really hope that we can make uh, better um, decisions on how we respond to these violent acts and how we can protect our communities generally. So uh, that is going to do it for this episode of Beltway Banthas, the politics and social hierarchies of Thrawn. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It means a lot for the show and helps us uh, know what we can do better as a show. But hopefully you also give us some really good reviews so that more people will find the show and, you know, we can get out to more people. You can find more out about Beltway Banthas and our family, the RetroZap Podcast Network on RetroZap.com. You can find me on Twitter at SwaraSaleh1. That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H-1. You can find Stephen at um, his new handle of Stephen of Kent. That's Stephen with a P-H um, on Twitter as well. Um, and... Thank you to our uh, new assistant producer, John Liang, or Juan John Jedi on Twitter. Um, You know, he's a listener and friend of the show who's going to be helping us uh, make more of this program for y'all. And, uh, you know, uh, like he helped prepare with a lot of notes for this episode. So thank you to John. Ross, where can people find you online and more of your work? Oh, they can find me uh, contributing to VanderBlog.com. And uh, I will occasionally throw things up of my own at brownsreview.com. Excellent. And on Twitter at uh, Wolf's Ghost, with then Wolf after the E. That's after Thomas Wolf for those curious. Oh, nice, nice. Who's Thomas Wolf again? He is a uh, North Carolinian uh, writer from the uh, early half of the 20th century. He wrote uh, book Homeward Angel and You Can't Go Home Again. Nice, very nice. I'll have to check those out. And Ross, just thank you so, so much for joining us today. This was a fantastic conversation and can't wait to have you back on the show sometime soon, man. Uh, I can't wait to come back. It's been a pleasure and an honor. So thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure, man. And thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning in this episode and may the force be with you always. Hey there, Star Wars fans. This is Annalise Ophelian, the director of Looking for Leia. We're on a quest to tell the stories of girls and women who love the galaxy far, far away, and we need your help. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. We're running a Kickstarter campaign for production funds that ends this Friday night, June 23rd. Either we raise all of our $25,000 goal, or we don't get any of it. Do or do not. There is no try. Time is running out. Here's what you can do. We'd love it if you'd visit lookingforleia.com and follow the links to our campaign. Donate what you can and pick up a cool perk while you're at it. Every dollar counts and helps us tell the stories of the girls and women of Star Wars fandom. General, count me in. Help us spread the word about this campaign from Coruscant to the Outer Rim by posting the link to social media and telling your friends, fandoms, and family. 
We're celebrating the richness and diversity of female Star Wars fans by dedicating a feature-length documentary film to their stories. Support women-made film. Support women in fandom. And please, support Looking for Leia. Thank you. May the Force be with you. <laughs>